Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague shall come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you, to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, you are a great God. All these promises you make to us, and we come with empty hands back. God, I pray that um, we pray for your, your blessing of forgiveness. I pray that you look upon us with pity as you already do. And like the, the fowl in the psalm that you put together so nicely. God, protect us and shield us from the things that are even inside us. God, I pray you forgive us for our sins. God, and give us hearts that are repentant. I pray that this morning is pleasing to you. Amen. Amen. Oh, Father God, how can you follow up on something like that? You are our living hope, Lord. You're our fortress. You're our stronghold. We can turn to you in any storm and at any time, Lord. Thank you for blessing us with this time together. Thank you for these words of praise and worship, Lord. Please just peel the scales off our hearts and our eyes. Unplug our ears that we can hear this message and receive it in all of its full glory, Lord. Glory to you, Lord, in your name. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Brother John, you come. Well, good morning, UBC. It's an honor and a privilege to be with you again this morning to worship 
our good and gracious God together. And indeed, how can I follow up after that? <laughs> that was a wonderful time of worship, and I am so thankful uh, for that time, and I'm thankful for the team and all the hard work you put in uh, to bring that to us, so thank you. Uh, this morning, we'll be starting a new series that I have titled, Who is God? And throughout this series, we are simply going to consider the depths of who God is. And let me just say this really quick. By me preaching this series, it is not my intention to communicate to you as your new pastor that the reason for my preaching this series is because I think that you don't know who God is. That is not my intent. And that has not been an observation of mine. In fact, I have seen and heard enough to show me that there is a depth and rich knowledge of our God amongst our people. However, in any church, there is always a variety in the current state of degrees of knowledge, and it is okay if these things are new to you. And if they are, then I praise God for the opportunity to introduce you to them, to show you from the Word of God some of the greatness and wonders of this marvelous God that we serve. But there are some reasons why I picked this series. Number one, there is an ignorance in our world of who God is. Right? You don't have to go too far. You don't even have to go out of our town to see this reality. And there is an ignorance as to the being of God. And it is important for us to know God as he has revealed himself in the scriptures. And it is important that we know how to articulate some of these things and to stand ready to be able to give a defense. And so, for example, it is a common charge against God for people to claim that the God of the New Testament is different than the, than the one of the old. And I want to make sure that we all are able to stand ready to give a defense against blasphemous claims such as that one. And so that's a reason for this series, to equip you as we consider some very important topics. But additionally, J.I. Packer once said, quote, There is no peace like the peace of those whose minds are possessed with full assurance that they have known God and God has known them, and that this relationship guarantees God's favor to them in life, through death, and on forever. Close quote. I want you, for your own sakes, to know God rightly, so that your assurances can be solidly founded on Him. And so I'm excited to plunge into the depths of the scriptures and dig for the pearls that are contained therein, which will aid us in beholding the greatness of our God as we answer the question, who is God? So I invite you to turn your copy of God's Word with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. As we consider the aseity, eternality, and immutability of God. 
Acts 17. That's page 1100 in your pew Bible. And if you're a visitor this morning and you don't own a Bible, uh, we would love for you to feel free to keep that pew Bible as our gift to you. Uh, there are also some welcome notepads at the entrance, uh, near the entrance that you can take there. And there's an information card in it that you can fill out and slip into the offering box by the main uh, door to the worship uh, center. And uh, we would love the opportunity to be able to reach out and follow up with you. Acts chapter 17. And this morning, we will only be looking at the first of the, of the three attributes that I just mentioned. And next week, we will pick back up in this text and look at the other two. So Acts 17 and verses 22 through 31 will be our main text under consideration. And this is probably a very familiar passage to you. It is a very well-known portion of Scripture. We will be looking at Paul's <clears throat> preaching at Mars Hill. This is during Paul's second missionary journey. He has made his way to Athens, and he is alone. Luke, it seems, stayed back in Philippi while Paul and Silas traveled to Thessalonica, from which Paul departs and makes his way to Athens, leaving Silas and Timothy behind. And then we read in verse 16, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, so while he was waiting for, for Silas and Timothy, to make their way to him in Athens, Paul is provoked in his spirit as he sees the level of idolatry that was consuming the city. And so he begins to preach and teach in the gospel or to teach the gospel in the synagogues, and then has a conversation with a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, verse 18. And they take him to Mars Hill or the Areopagus. Uh, Areopagus translates to the hill of Ares. Ares was the Greek god of war. <clears throat> and the Roman religious counterpart was Mars. So this is the hill of Mars, or Mars Hill, which was at this time perhaps the supreme court of Athens, the religious court, the court of the philosophers. And so here's where our text for this morning picks up. Paul is now preaching to the people of Athens at Mars Hill. And in this text, we see Paul proclaiming some amazing truths about the one true God of the universe in opposition to the plethora of gods and idols here in Athens. So let's begin by reading our text, starting in verse 22, where God's inerrant infallible and sufficient word which he has spoken to us here through the pen of Luke reads. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. 
And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the arts and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which we, on which, in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Let's pray. Father, you alone are God. And you alone are worthy of our worship. Father, we come to worship you this morning. And may this time of preaching and hearing your word read and taught be an act of worship on behalf of everyone in this room for your glory and your honor. Help me, Lord, as I preach. In Jesus' name. Amen. The 1800s Baptist missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, once said, quote, The great need of every Christian worker is... How do you think he completes that sentence? What do you think a missionary who devoted a majority of his life to seeing the gospel reach China would say is the greatest need of every Christian worker. A missionary who endured the death of four of his children and his wife while in the mission field. A missionary who made over nine voyages to and from China, who founded the China Inland Mission with about 18 missionaries, which has now grown to a team of over 2,000 from over 40 nations serving over 100 people groups in East Asia and worldwide. The great need of every Christian worker is to know God. Close quote. And hear what he is saying. Every Christian worker. He is not talking about knowing God and saving faith. He is talking about the need of those who are already born again, who know God in salvation. Their greatest need is to know God for spiritual formation, to know the God of the Bible and the Bible of God, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is what got this missionary through such difficult times, and this is what, as a Christian, you are called to maturity, and mission. 
You are called to grow in your knowledge of God and to share that knowledge with the world. And in our text this morning, I want you to see yet another Christian worker who, upon entering a city that was ignorant of truth, was troubled and moved in his spirit to share that knowledge of who God is. His maturity compelled him to this mission, to share these truths with a people who were ignorant and insolent, a people who had raised up every kind of idol out of the superstition of their own hearts. And so notice now with me our first attribute of God that we will consider from this text, aseity, the aseity of God. Now here we see the Apostle Paul taking a bold stand to proclaim the truth of God's word to a diverse group of people. We read that some mocked him, some were quite rude in their attitude towards him, and others were actually intrigued by the things that he was proclaiming. Now, Athens was a very religious society, and their religious beliefs were more so led by emotion rather than logic. They had some brilliant philosophers, but their religious thinking allowed for worship of all kinds of idols. In fact, some have said that the philosopher did not govern the religious climate of the time, but rather the poet did. And so idolatry was rampant. The ancient geographer Pausinius wrote in the second century, quote, that the Athenians surpassed all states in the attention which they paid to the worship of the gods, close quote. And another author wrote something to the effect that in Athens, it was easier to find a god than it was to find a man. But Paul knew the one and only true God. And as he stands at Mars Hill before this crowd of listeners, he begins to proclaim some fundamental truths about God. Truths of the very being of God that logically must be in order for God to be God. Truths which set the real God apart from every man-made, imagined, and invented idol. And I just love the sass of the Apostle Paul here. And just a quick fact about Sophie and I, we both love sass. So feel free to dish it out to us, but uh, just be ready to receive it back if you do. But we love sass, and the Apostle Paul does too. You see it in a number of places throughout his letters. And Luke captures it quite well here. So it's clearly a biblical virtue. But Paul, Paul here wittily uses the fact that he has seen an altar that was set up for the worship of the unknown God. And he springboards off of that to basically tell them, I know him. And now let me tell you about him. And here's the basic foundational truth that Paul starts out with to make God known to these Athenians. Look at verses 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Stop right there. 
there is so much to unpack in that one statement, which I would imagine Paul did here at Mars Hill. And so his whole message is probably not recorded for us. This is likely just a summary. But what is it that Paul is trying to communicate by that statement? He is proclaiming the aseity of God. Aseity is a word that comes from the Latin root words for from and self. And theologically, it speaks of the self-beingness or self-existence of God and his self-sufficiency. So let's consider those two truths this morning. God's self-existence and self-sufficiency. That is the aseity of God. Paul first directs the minds of the Athenians to the self-existence of God. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it. And it is interesting that this being the court of the philosophers, the supreme court of Athens, that Paul starts with that statement. Because there are some very deep philosophical and theological implications. And again, we're told in verse 18 that he was brought here by some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, the Epicureans argued that there is no such thing as a creating or controlling God and that our universe was merely created by accident, by large-scale atomic collisions. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? And the Stoics uh, were really just pantheists, meaning that they believed that the universe was basically deity. Mother Nature or the sort. And so there was intelligent design of sorts, but they also allowed for polytheism. And so they actually had some rather odd beliefs here and there. But again, these were some brilliant minds that Paul was standing up against. These were very well established, very well thought out philosophies by this time. And along with the Epicurean and Stoics, one of the other leading philosophies of the time came from the school of Plato and was known as academic skepticism, which basically said that man cannot know for certain anything about the world. And they were great at rational argumentation. They were very academic, a very well-known figure in this tradition was Cicero, who was a Roman attorney, scholar, and philosopher. And he actually wrote a book called On the Nature of the Gods, which is a detailed discussion of the Epicurean, Stoic, and academic skeptics' theories of God and religion. And that book was written about a hundred years before this day here in Athens, when Paul preaches at Mars Hill. And so there can hardly be any doubt that all three groups were represented as Paul preaches on this day. So these philosophies were very well established. And what Paul is asserting here is, in the beginning, God. Right? That's what he is saying. The God who made the world and everything in it. He made the world and everything in it. Everything that is, is 
because this one singular God created it. And notice that Paul is also proclaiming the exclusivity of monotheism here. The God who made the world and everything in it. And so this one statement gets to the heart of some of the most existential questions in the human experience. Such as, where do we come from? How did all of this come into existence? And just like the Epicureans of Paul's day, some of the leading world-renowned scientists of our day answer these questions in a very similar way. Now, I hope I don't lose you here with this philosophical talk. But I do want to share this with you because I do believe it is important, and I believe it might be a help to some of you. So bear with me. And let me just warn you here uh, by letting you know exactly where I stand before I get into it. I am a young earth, six literal day creationist. And so if you are a billions of years evolutionist, I love you. But I think you're wrong. And I hope we can still be friends after the sermon. Remember that sass thing? Yeah. But again, I do love you. So let's still be friends, even though you might think I'm wrong too. We should still love each other despite our disagreements. But anyways, Forbes has published a, an article on their website by a Ph.D. astrophysicist, author, and professor who has won numerous scientific awards, including the, quote, best science blog by the Institute of Physics. His name is Ethan Siegel. And the article is titled, Ask Ethan, How Did the Entire Universe Come from Nothing? <clears throat> and here are some quick, basic laws of physics, which lead to this question of how did the universe come from nothing. The first law of thermodynamics is known as the law of conservation of energy, which states that energy can neither be created nor destroyed. And the second law of thermodynamics is the law of entropy, which basically states that entropy always increases with time. Entropy being the unavailability of a system's thermal energy for conservation into mechanical work. And I see some of you did not think you'd be getting a science lesson this morning. <clears throat> so in English, what these basic laws of physics teach as it relates to the universe is that because the universe is expanding and there is less energy available for work, <clears throat> as that happens, because the energy cannot be created or destroyed, therefore... The universe has to have had a point of beginning and will have an end. Think about it in terms of a car's engine running on fuel. The engine is running, and because it uses fuel to run, you know that the engine will stop running if it's left on because it is using up the fuel that it has. And because you see the car is currently running on fuel, you know that there is a point in which it started running. 
Now, that is a very simplistic way of illustrating these laws of physics as it pertains to the universe, but that's where all these secular scientists get to. Because of these laws, they know that the universe had a beginning, and it will have an end. But how did it come into being? What was before there was a universe? That's the question. And they try to answer it in many different ways with many different theories. And the leading theory of today is that the universe began at a point of singularity, which is called the Big Bang. But that theory still doesn't answer the question of where did everything that was needed for the Big Bang come from. And it also actually violates another law of physics, the law of inertia, which says that a body at rest remains at rest unless acted on by an external force. But anyways, the question is, knowing that the universe had a beginning, how did everything come from nothing? And hence the title of the article. And so in this Forbes article, this PhD astrophysicist says that there is a difference between philosophical nothingness and a more physical definition of nothingness. And they're all valid, quote, depending on your context. And by the way, this is a pretty common thing in our day, isn't it? Redefining terms. And now nothing has four different definitions, so be careful how you use it. <clears throat> and by the way, the website bigthink.com, which publishes interviews, presentations, and roundtable discussions with experts from a wide range of fields just published an article with these four definitions of nothing this past month in December. And here they are. Number one, nothing means or can mean, depending on your context, a time when your thing of interest didn't exist, which really only means that that thing didn't exist. It doesn't really speak about nothingness because many other things can still exist if that one particular thing doesn't, but okay. Number two, it can mean empty physical space, even though space is still a thing. But anyways, number three, empty space or empty space-time in the lowest energy state possible. Uh, that's still something. And four, this is this one's also a definition for something, instead of nothing, but it is an astonishing, astonishing, astonishing. Okay, that's when that's when you know I'm getting tired. Astonishing, astonishingly, <laughs> it comes out in my mind, but not my mouth. So, it is a correct view of the beginning of the universe, surprisingly. So listen to this fourth definition of nothing. Whatever you're left with when you take away the entire universe and the laws governing it. So let me repeat that. Nothing can mean whatever you're left with when you take away the entire universe and the laws governing it. Close quote. And here's the interesting thing. That is the most honest view 
of nothingness from a cosmological perspective that I have ever heard from a secular scientist. Because I agree with the loss of logic that made this astrophysicist arrive at this conclusion, though I disagree with his definition of that being nothing. And here's where we should agree with that fourth statement. Whatever you're left with when you take away the entire universe and the laws governing it, meaning there was something before the universe came into existence. Because there had to be something in order for the universe to come into existence. Because here's the thing. Logically, we as Christians shouldn't be saying that there was nothing before the universe came into being without properly explaining what we mean. Because if we simply say that, then we violate the law of non-contradiction. Because nothing can be created out of nothingness by nothing. Instead, the principle that our argument should stand on is that if anything exists, then something must have always existed by necessity. And so the Christian understanding of cosmology is that God is that being that exists by necessity. God is the uncaused cause. He has the power and he alone of being within himself. And so while the orthodox doctrine of creation ex nihilo is absolutely biblical, meaning God created the universe out of nothing, what we mean by that is that there was no physical reality prior to creation. No space and time, no pre-existing matter or energy or anything whatsoever that God used to bring about creation. In that sense, there was nothing. But there has never been absolutely nothingness in the truest sense of the word because God has always been. And so, yes, God created the universe ex nihilo, out of nothing. But before the universe came into existence, there was God. Do you see that? So it is not completely accurate to say that there was nothing before the universe was created because God has always been. But it is accurate to say that God, who has always been, created the universe out of nothing. Genesis 1.1 In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Hebrews 11.3 by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Romans 4, 17 says that God, quote, calls into existence the things that do not exist, close quote. John 1, 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That is ex nihilo. God brings into existence by the mere power of his word. How is that possible? 
because he has the power of being within himself necessarily. That is what Paul is proclaiming to these Athenians. God who made the world and everything in it. He is the cause of all existence. He is the uncaused cause. And the laws of logic demand that that truth be proclaimed. This is the self-existence of God. But he also proclaimed the self-sufficiency of God. As I mentioned earlier, the aseity of God refers to the self-existence and self-sufficiency of God. And notice how the apostle brings that truth forward. Look again at verses 24 and 25. He says, God, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is completely self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything from anyone. He has everything he needs within himself. He is perfect in his being. He doesn't need your worship. He doesn't need your service. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need your permission, your consent, your assent, your friendship, your love, your life, your sacrifices. He needs nothing, and he needs nothing out of necessity because he is perfect in all his ways and self-sufficient in every manner. But the other thing that Paul is also trying to communicate in this text is that as Lord of heaven and earth, he does demand something from you, his creature, his creation, and that is submission. Verse 30, he commands all people everywhere to repent. But friends, this command, though it is given by the greatest power and authority in the world, right now is the most gentle and friendliest offer of terms of peace from a king whom you've offended and transgressed, and, and transgressed against. You see, this king, though he needs nothing from you, his greatest desire for you and from you is himself. Meaning he wants you to have this knowledge of God that we have been talking about. Because he is the greatest good, perfect in every way. The best thing for you in this world is to know God. Hosea 6.6 6, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He is self-existent and self-sufficient. And he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't need anything from you, but he offers himself to you. He offers you a friend. He offers you a loving father, a great high priest, an empowering spirit, everlasting life, to those that repent and believe. In verse 31, he has given assurance to all by raising Christ from the dead. He has shown us that these things are true by giving up his son to die on the cross and raising him from the dead. 
self-existing, self-sustaining God, creator of the universe, not only sustains us, but he is also willing to save us and sanctify us and make us sons and daughters of God. Romans 5.8 But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Is that not amazing? That this mighty being who has the power to bring into existence things that are not in existence and who needs nothing outside of himself is willing to lavish us freely with such grace and mercy. This is our God. This is the one true God. This is the only God. He is the self-existent, self-sustaining, uncaused cause, everything creating and sustaining being of the universe. The greatest need of every Christian is to know their God. Behold your God, beloved. Let me just encourage you with another fact. Beware of what scientists say. As someone once said, science doesn't speak. Scientists do. And today, scientists try to pass off historical science, that is the umbrella under which creation science falls under, as fact. There are two main umbrellas under which science falls. There is operational science, and that is what falls under the scientific method. That is, anything that is observable, testable, repeatable, and falsifiable. Creation is not observable, testable, repeatable, or falsifiable. The past is not observable, repeatable, testable, falsifiable. Therefore, it falls under a different category. That being historical science. It doesn't fall under the scientific method. So anything that a scientist comes up with to explain creation is purely theoretical. The Big Bang is a theory. Darwinian evolution is a theory. Neither are scientific fact. And in fact, the opposite is true. They are theories created by men who look at the evidence with the hard-lined presupposition that there is no God. Naturalism and materialism are the idols of those scientists. But there was one being that was present at creation. God. And that being has communicated to us through the scriptures. The Bible is God's word. And the self-existing, self-sustaining God cannot lie because he is God. So while anything that falls under historical science through the minds of scientists is not certain fact, you can have full confidence that everything from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21 is pure, historical, infallible, and inerrant fact because in the beginning, God. 
I just want to close this morning with this benediction from Romans 11.36. And next week we will continue to exposit this text as we consider the eternality and immutability of God. Romans 11.36 For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things to Him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we stand in awe and are humbled. Lord, that though you from eternity past had everything you needed, have everything you need, and need nothing from anyone or anything outside of yourself, created us in this entire universe out of your goodwill for your good pleasure. And Father, though we rebelled against you, and though we daily sin against you, you made a way to save sinners. Father, we thank you for Christ and we thank you for the truth that is in your word and that we can trust it. And that our faith is founded on sound logic and reality. Father, we pray that you would help to equip us all and embolden us all as Paul was emboldened and moved. Father, would you give us a greater desire and a greater love for people that would move us to share these truths. Father, as people perish daily, that we would not be so comfortable. You are a great God. And we thank you for all of these that are in this room that you have saved. Father, would you save more? For your glory and your honor. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. And let's stand.